This is my right A right given by God To live a free life To live in freedom Talking about ready to continue our series on freedom. Now, just to recap, get us back all on the same page, this whole series, this whole book in Galatians is about freedom. Paul is saying that Christ has come to set us free, and it is for freedom that we've been set free. And so today we're going to see that we've been set free from, um, I'm going to call this message set free from rods, bars, and job descriptions. I think you'll see what I mean when we get there. So let's just dive in because we have a lot to cover and I know Karen's anxious to get into this law stuff. All right, let's just jump right in there. Galatians chapter 3, we're going to start at verse 15 and just finish out that chapter. I give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, Paul tells us, and that is Christ. And so Paul says, I need to use a human example. I need to, I'm going to give you a human example. I want to teach you some deep, theological, heavy truths, but I can't do that because all I have is human examples in hand. And so I'm going to give you a human example, he says, and the human example I'm going to give is of a human contract or human will, a last will and testament. Now, you know what a last will and testament is. It's this um, promise, this testament that you make. You go to a lawyer, you write up this last will, and it says, who will get your stuff when you die? Who's going to get your stuff? Uh, just to give you a definition, I found it off the intranet. It says, a will or a testament is a legal declaration by which a person names one or more persons to manage his or her estate and it provides for the distribution of his property at death. And so Paul is saying, if you take a human, you know, human illustration, people in modern times, people in ancient times, they would make a will. And if I made a will, for instance, you don't even really have to go to a lawyer anymore. You can do it on the intranet. You can get a, a will, and it might say, when I die, all of my stuff, which is basically one car and two televisions, will um, go to my oldest son. Or maybe I'll say all of my stuff will go equally to all three of my children when I pass. And if I say that when I die, then that document guarantees that those three kids will get my car and two televisions equally. They'll have to figure that out themselves, but that's what that says. Am I right? And if I understand correctly, um, a, a last will and testament is a binding document of the highest authority. Because I'm dead... The lawyers, the courts have nothing to go by except for this piece of paper. And the paper says, you know, divided by the three. So that's what we're going to have to do. There's no loopholes. Well, there could be loopholes. You know, my oldest son might say, no, I'm the oldest. I deserve the car. I get it first. And he might try to find some legal loopholes. But from what I understand is that a, this legal document is so tight, those loops or holes <laughs> are hard even to get through. It takes a lot to get through those loopholes. Do you understand what I'm saying? You can't break 
a legal will and testament. So Paul is saying, if that's true for a human will and testament, then how much more so is it true for God's will and testament? Can God's will and testament be broken? Can God's promise have loopholes? And his answer, of course, is no. no absolutely not. It's, it's the highest promise. If God makes a promise, it is a promise. So what is God's promise? Well, Paul is talking about Abraham. He has been for the past several verses. And this is the promise that God makes to Abraham. This promise you see in Genesis 12, 18, and 22. And it says this. In your offspring, Paul quoted this verse, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So this is the promise of God. Someday, Abraham's going to have some offspring. And his great, 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 I don't know how many greats, grandson is going to be the the one, that one particular offspring who's going to receive the promises of God, which is to bless all of the nations of the earth. Um, It's to his offspring, that's singular, not to all the offsprings, just to the one offspring, and that one offspring is Christ. So it's important for us to see that Christ is that offspring. You knew that though, right? Right. (laughs) So think about this. Jesus is God. God came to earth and he died. And once he died, that inheritance, that will and testament is now being delivered to the nations, is now being given. Look, he died and so now his last will and testament is ours. And so right now you and I, and all the nations of the earth are being blessed by this promise from God to Abraham even today. We get the inheritance of Abraham. Does that make sense? Okay, so let's, let's listen to what he says next. So this is what I mean. This is what I'm trying to tell you. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified or established by God so as to make that promise If the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a what? Promise. So Paul says, remember last week Paul asked, how did you get saved? Did you get saved by working through the law, by trying harder, doing better, being gooder? Did you get saved by doing your quiet time every morning at 6 a.m. and then loving your neighbor as yourself? And then one day you just kind of arrived with a black belt in salvation. Or did it happen like this? You were sitting in church one day, Charles Spurgeon was preaching, you got knocked off the chair, and you heard the gospel and got saved. Everyone's answer is the latter. I heard with faith and got saved. Paul then asked the question, how about Abraham? How did Abraham get saved? Did he get saved by trying harder and doing better and being gooder and having his quiet time at six in the morning and loving his neighbor as himself? Or did he hear and respond with faith? And the answer, of course, is he heard and responded with faith. Faith. In fact, it was kind of a trick question because Abraham is here in Genesis chapter 12, and Moses, who gave us the law from Mount Sinai, is way over here in Exodus about 430 years later. So it's a trick question because obviously, no, Abraham didn't obey the law and get saved. He had faith. That's what saved him. The law didn't even come until 430 years later. So Abraham promised, I'm going to bless the nations through Jesus. Moses got a law, Ten Commandments, 430 years later. So here's the question. Does Moses' law, 430 years later, is that a loophole to the original promise? Is, is, is this God saying, you know what? Change my mind about that promise. I, now I want you to do these things, and then you'll be saved. Is it a loophole? 
did God change his mind? When God said, Moses, take these Ten Commandments down from Mount Sinai, was he essentially tearing up his last will and testament and said, I'm done with that. We're going to go with this new plan B. And Paul's saying, no. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not cancel the covenant which was previously made by God. God's promise still stands. It does not make that promise void. So when Christ died, here's what, here's what Martin Luther says. When Christ died, this testament sealed by his blood. After his death, the testament was opened up and it was published to all the nations. And no man ought to alter God's promises as the false prophets tampered with God's testament. Listen to this. In Paul's day, so many do in our day, Luther said. And as we've covered throughout this series, and it's still happening today, is it not? We still use the law and talk about the law in a way that sounds like it's canceling the, or voiding the original promise of God, which was given by faith. So how did Abraham get saved? The Bible answers this question so many times. And the answer is always this. It was given to Abraham as credit because of his faith. So Abraham is here. God says, I'm going to promise you. I'm going to, make, I'm going to write you into my will and testament. I'm going to give it all to you. And then later on, he gets this law, and 430 years later, and then later on, um, Jesus is going to come, I don't know, 1,000 years later, and the Bible says, Abraham got saved because his faith in that promise, not, Abraham didn't even hear about the law. There was no mention of the law, right? Nothing. He just said, an offspring's going to come, and you're going to get all the inheritance of the universe. And so, whew, he had faith in that, and the Bible says, he got credit for that now, that's the answer. Now, maybe what I need to do is explain a little bit the difference between a will and a, or, or a promise or a covenant and a contract. So Abraham was given a covenant. Moses was given a contract. Abraham was given a covenant that was unconditional. Abraham couldn't do anything to gain that promise or to lose a promise, right? Where was the promise coming? From some great, 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 great grandchild. Abraham could do nothing about that. He could try harder, do better, be gooder, all he wants, but he has no control over that grandchild. It's an unconditional promise. Moses, on the other hand, was given a conditional contract. Therefore, do this and receive that. Don't do this and don't receive that. And so the difference between a, a will and a promise is it's unconditional. A difference between a contract is it's conditional. You know what a contract is. You have a contract on your life right now. You didn't know that, did you? If you have a job. Some of you have jobs. Some of you don't. <laughs> if you have a job, you have a contract. And that, job is a, that contract is a job description. It says something like this, and I put this very small because this is the fine print that was written on my, my job description when I got hired. It says, if you do this and that, then we will pay you such and such amount. And plus, we'll give you two weeks of vacation per year. Furthermore, you will receive an annual review to determine whether, in fact, you are doing this and that and whether we should continue to pay you such and such. More to that, in your review, if you have proven to perform well at this and that, we might, but also reserve the right not to, give you a raise or a bonus and pay you more such and such as for doing this and that. Isn't that what your job description contract is? So a contract is you produce, you get paid. You perform, you get paid. You don't produce, you don't perform, no pay for you. In fact, we're going to fire you. Isn't that how a contract works? We have our salvation from a promise, an unconditional promise. Jesus is coming, and when he comes, we're going to open up this contract, and, and you get to be an heir of this inheritance. There's no performance needed. There's no production needed. It is a promise. Listen to what Luther says. A testament is not a law, or another way of saying it is a promise. 
is not a law, but it's an inheritance. Heirs do not look for laws and assessments when they open up a last will and testament. So let's just say that you came to the lawyer's office. Let's say you called Saul. You know what I mean? So he went to Saul's lawyer office, and, and, he, and he, slid, he slid that inheritance across the room to you and says, this is what your daddy done left you. When you pick it up, you're not going to be like looking for conditions and laws, right? You're going to be looking for stuff, televisions and Hondas, right? And so it says this, they look for grants and favors, Luther says. The testament which God made out to Abraham did not contain laws. It only contained promises and great spiritual blessings. Isn't that good news? Paul is giving a human example. Let me just give a human example too. Let's, let's just come up with a story. Let's say there's this man, a rich, a wealthy man, and he has no sons, and so he adopts a son. I know many of you in this room are thinking about adoption. Um, so let's say that this guy adopts a son. Um, young age, he gets this son. He does everything right. He does all the legal things by the book, gets this son, his name, his last name, and he raises this son in his own home, teaches him you know, all, everything he needs to know. And then let's say the son turns about 20 years old. He starts to be mature, and the father feels comfortable with this boy. And he says, I'm going to make a will and testament. And so he goes to the lawyer's office, and he writes up this contract, and he says, when I die, I want all of it to go to my son. When, uh, he's, and this is my son. I've adopted him. He is my son. Then let's say 20 years later, the son is what, 40? I'm, I'm not very good with math, but I think that's, you know, this is, this is round, you know, numbers. Um, he's 40. And let's say the dad calls the son and says, hey, son, uh, could you do me a favor? I got a business trip coming. I'm going to Hong Kong, and I just, I'm going to be gone for three months. Can you just take care of your mother for me? I need you to come to the house, pick up groceries. You know, can you do me a favor? Can you do me a solid? Can you, can you run the business while I'm gone to Hong Kong for the next three months? And the son says, sure, Dad, I love you. I'll do whatever you, whatever you need. Okay, this is a long story, isn't it? Then, 20 years later, 60. So the, dad's 60, the son is 60 years old now, and the dad finally kicks it, <laughs> and he dies. And the son gets the inheritance, and it says, you have everything. I love you. If the son said this, I earned this because I did my father a solid when I was 40. Would that be ridiculous or what? It would, wouldn't it? And that is what Paul is saying here. We have been given a promise by God. And just because a law came 430 years later, we can never say, I did not murder, I did not steal, and therefore I earned the inheritance. The inheritance is given, amen? Not earned. But Paul says, the law is dead to me. We are free from the law. But you're probably asking this question, Karen. Why? Why? Why then the law? Karen and I have had a lot of Facebook conversations about how complicated and how weird sounding this whole series is. What about the law? Isn't it good? It is good, right? God said it was good. Paul, I mean, I mean, David said it's a honeycomb to my mouth. So, but so 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 if the law doesn't save us, the promise was given here. It seems that we just kind of jump right over the law to Jesus. What's the purpose of the law then? Isn't it funny how this question keeps coming up in Galatians and in Romans? How many times has this question come up in our series? Karen? <laughs> a many. It comes up a lot. Because our, our tendency is to say something. It feels like Paul's being a little bit radical. He's saying, look, that law had nothing to do with the inheritance. In fact, the promise is better. It came before. It's stronger. And then we say, but that sounds, sounds heretical. It sounds like blasphemy. It sounds wrong. And then we say, well, then if the law doesn't matter, then we'd go crazy. Let's go. Let's get crazy. We're never going to survive unless we get a little bit crazy. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
let's get a little bit. You know who sings that song? No, I didn't. Charles, <laughs> Charles, Magic Mike. <laughs> you know who sings that song, right? No. Oh man, some Prince. No, Seal. His name was Seal. Um, I think it's just C Seal. <laughs> just kidding. Why then the law? Luther asked this question. People, listen to the way Luther talks. People, foolish but wise in their conceits. This means they're wise in what they're thinking because this is a natural thing to ask. If Paul just says the law is dead, it has nothing to do with salvation, then it's natural for you to say, well, then what's the point of the law? But he says they're foolish when they jump to this conclusion. So people, foolish but wise in their conceits, jump to the conclusion, if the law does not justify or save us, make us righteous, it is good for nothing. Luther says, well, how about that? Just because money does not justify, would you say that money is good for nothing? If you do, there's a green bowl at your table. Dump it in. (laughs) It's good for nothing. (laughs) Would you say that money is good for nothing? Because the eyes do not save you, would you pluck them out? Because the law does not save, does not follow that the law is without value. We must find and define the, the purpose and the, the proper purpose of the law. Luther says we do not offhand condemn the law because we say it does not save. The law is good. The law has a purpose, but the law's purpose is not to save you. The law's purpose is not to give you an inheritance. So again, the question is, why then the law? <laughs> Paul has an answer. It's very simple. It's not even a very long sentence. You could remember this one probably. The law was added because of sin. Did you see that? Why then the law? It was added because of sin, because of transgression. So you know this. God doesn't like sin. It offends him. He is holy, and sin is not, and God doesn't like sin. And so when he sees sin, he wants to destroy it. There was a story in the Bible about a lot of sin it came up. God said, I see all this sin. I see the blood. You know, the children of the blood is calling out to me, so I'm going to destroy the earth. And he destroyed it with a big flood. Remember this story? A man named Noah built a boat. And God said, I'm going to destroy the earth because of the sin. And, the, and that, that, that flood lasted how many days and how many nights? Do you remember? Forty. Forty days and forty nights. So it didn't last forever. Eventually, the water went down. Birds started to sing. Flowers started to float or um, grow. And And God started all over. But guess what? God made a promise. I'm not going to destroy the earth with a flood anymore. What I will do instead is give it the law. So the flood didn't work because people still sinned. And sin continued to grow. And so why the law? Because of sin. Sin is bad. God doesn't like it. So he made the law to control sin. It's interesting, isn't it? Did you notice this? It says until, there's a time limit. The law was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Who's the offspring? Someone say it. Jesus. <laughs> so, so the law actually has one of those expiration dates on it. I don't know if you ever thought about this or not. You know how your food sometimes gets that little thing best if served by, and then you wonder, well, what if it's not served by then? Is it just not best? <laughs> Is it okay? <laughs> the law actually has that stamp, best if used before Jesus comes. But once Jesus comes... We don't need the law anymore. The law came because of sin. And so scholars will say, because of sin, there's, there's the two uses of the law. 
You might have heard that before. There's two functions of the law. Maybe you've heard the twofold use of the law. Here's the twofold use of the law. First, the law is for civil purposes, and I'll explain this in a minute. And second, it's for spiritual purposes. So first, the law is for civil, has a civil use. What does that mean? That means if there's a crime, there's a punishment. When the Bible says, thou shalt not kill, what does it say later on? If you kill, you will stone you. So, so there's a civil use of it. It scares you. It makes you realize you can't do this or you'll get punished. Luther says, it's interesting because doesn't it reveal to us then that we want to sin because we need this civil thing to hold us back because we're like wild men. And when the Bible says don't kill, we want to kill something. Cats, maybe, I don't know. We just want to do something bad. And so we need this law to scare us. If you do it, you're going to get killed. If you, if you steal, you're going to go to jail. Or you're going to get a hefty fine. That's the only reason why I don't speed is because I can't afford to pay the fines. If it wasn't for that, I would go as fast as I can, would you not? So the law is here for civil purposes, to control us, to, to give us fear. But you see, it, we don't obey the law because we want to. We obey the law because we're afraid. It's a prison. It's violent. It holds us back. The second use of the law is spiritual. first one condemns. The second one convicts. So you read the Bible, and the Bible says, thou shalt not lust or what does the Bible say? Thou shalt not commit adultery. And then Jesus says, but I tell you, you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery. And then you go, mm, I guess I'll commit adultery. And then you're convicted. And then you, you get beat down a little bit. And you say, oh, man, I need grace. Because I'm never going to be able to try hard enough and do good enough and be better enough to lift myself out of the muck and mire. Because every time I read the law, it shows me how wicked I am. It shows me how bad I am. So do you see the two uses? One is civil, to control you. People have to be controlled. That's what religion is for anyway, right? That's what they said. It's the opiate of the masses to control them. But the other part of it is spiritual, to convict you, to make you scared, make you need, make you at the end of your rope so that you'll have to bet it all on Jesus. You know what I'm saying? Because you know you can't bet it all on yourself. Martin Luther at this point says, the spiritual one, is the principal purpose of the law, the best, the principal purpose of the law and the most valuable contribution. I love what he says here. As long as a person is not a murderer or an adulterer or a thief, he would swear that he is righteous. Remember last week I told you how I went to Chesterfield Mall, talked to about a dozen people and asked them how they thought they were going to get to heaven and they all said, well, I'm pretty good, I don't murder. <laughs> I don't cheat on my taxes, at least not on purpose. It's true, everyone thinks because I'm not a murderer, because I'm not Jeffrey Dahmer, I'm good. I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. Luther says, everyone thinks that. Everyone thinks because I'm not that guy, I'm righteous. So then he asks this question, how is God going to humble such a person except by the law? We need to read it and know that it's there and it crushes us. As long as a person thinks he's right, he's going to be incomprehensibly proud and presumptuous. And he's going to hate God and despise God's grace and mercy and ignore the promises in Christ. By the way, just off script, do you remember the parable that Jesus tells about uh, the guy who owns a field and he gets workers? And he says, will you work for me from now until sundown for $20? And they say, yeah, I'll do that. And they work, and then he gets another one. Will you work for me for $20? Yeah, I'll do that. And then four hours later, will you work for me for $20? Yeah, and then eight hours later, will you work this one last hour for $20? And I'm like, yeah, I'll do that. And then at the end of the day, he pays all of them $20, and the, the guy who worked eight hours gets mad about it, doesn't he? 
It's like, wait a minute, that guy gets $20 and he only worked an hour? I worked eight hours, I should get more than $20. That's what Luther is saying here. He's saying we would become proud and we'll think that we earned our salvation. We think we earned something. We, we, we have a right to demand God, I get more. And then we despise that guy who just got in the door. When he gets saved, that's not fair because we think we deserve it from our own righteousness. Do you hear what I'm saying? He goes on, the gospel of the free forgiveness of sin through Christ will never appeal to the self-righteous. The monster of self-righteousness, the stiff-necked beast, needs a big axe, and that is what the law is. It is a big axe. According to the proper use and function of the law, it is to threaten until the conscience is scared stiff. I don't know about you, but I think this is a little bit ironic um, because isn't it the legalists who always are like the ones toting the law? You know, thou shalt. You can't wear that shirt. You can't wear jeans to church. You know what I mean? They're the ones that are always kind of tousing some law. I think of the Pharisees who tell, who kind of beat up on Jesus because the, because the disciples didn't wash their hands because they weren't fasting. You're not fasting? You're not washing your hands? I think of this, I don't know why I have this picture in my head, of this tall guy in a blue, navy blue suit. He's got an extra large Bible, right, in his hands. And he stands at the door, shaking people's hands when they come in, and, and, he, and he looks down his nose at people. You know what I'm talking about? And, and in comes this guy who isn't wearing a navy blue suit. <laughs> He's probably tatting, you know, showing some tattoos or two. Smells like he just smoked a pack of parliaments before he got in the door. You know what I'm saying? And that guy looks down the nose. And what's he doing? Legalistic people always use the first use of the law, the civil use of the law like a club, and they beat up people with it. Am I right? They, they, they bully people. You can't. You can't. You shouldn't. You should. Quiet time, six in the morning. Don't listen to rock and roll. Only Christian music, right? They beat you with it. They even make up some of their own laws. But Luther's saying they're kind of the ones that need it most. Because they're self-righteous and they're a monster and it needs an axe to show them and reveal to them the wickedness of their own heart. Because if they have really, really, really been humbled by the law, no man would be down here saying, oh, I can never do enough. I'm so wicked. I'm so bad. I need, I need grace. I need forgiveness. I need mercy. No man would then pick up that same stick and start beating people because they wear blue jeans church. You know what I'm saying? So it's the legalistic people who love the law. And I say... As Luther says, let them have it. They need it. But then I just got whooped with the same stick, didn't I? Because now I'm judging them for being legalistic. And isn't that the point of this entire book? That Paul is saying Jesus has set us free from legalism. Jesus has set us free from the law. And shouldn't my heart be to love those people and show them that, you know, you know Jesus set you free from that. He set you free from the need to please others because you've already pleased God. He set you free from this need to do it a certain way and try harder and do better, but I tend to just want to just give them the act. We have to see the difference between the law. There's a difference between gospel and law. The gospel came to give us an inheritance, to give us life, to give us a blessing through a promise unconditionally. The law came to beat us, to convict us, to bring us down. The gospel came to pull us back up. Does that make sense? The law, Paul says, is a prison. They are bars. They lock you in. They control you. They hold you back. But grace 
And mercy and the gospel picks you up. The law blows its whistle at you and chases you down the back alley and beats you with the club and then throws you in the slammer. Grace picks you up, puts you in a high back leather chair in the lawyer's office, and then slides the inheritance across the table and says, it's all yours in faith. I love what Luther says. The silence in the church concerning the difference between the law and the gospel has resulted in untold harm. I want to say that again. Luther's saying this in the 1500s. The silence in the church concerning the difference between the law and the gospel has resulted in untold harm. And unless a sharp distinction is maintained between the purpose and the function of the law and a purpose and the function of the gospel, then Christian doctrine cannot be kept free from error. You see that? How many of you agree with me, not heard a lot about the difference between the law and the gospel? In fact, they all seem to kind of get muddied together. In fact, the use of the law is to convict and to control us, but the use of the gospel is to save us and set us free. But that's not how we use the law, is it? We talk about the law as if it saves us. We talk about the law that if you don't do this, then you must not be a Christian, and you better try harder, and you better do better. So I want to discuss this. What do you think about Luther's statement there? I think that some of the untold harm is I meet a lot of people who think they kind of have to clean themselves up before they go to church. So they think, yeah, I need to, I need to stop smoking. If I can stop smoking for two weeks, then I'm going to go to church. <laughs> or I need to, you know what I mean? They, they, they try themselves to fix themselves, which I don't know about you, but I'll just be honest with you. I've never been able to fix myself. Every time I've got a problem, you know, every New Year's, I start hitting the gym, you know, for about four days, and I eliminate carbs for about two. But, but no matter what, it just comes back. Like the Bible says, I return to the vomit. Like a dog returns, I turn to my sin, like a dog returns to vomit. <laughs> so, so, so people tend to communicate, whether they do it on, on purpose or not, this to the world. And the world thinks that in order for me to get inside that club, I've got to look a certain part. And then therefore they never come inside because they can't ever look at that certain part. And what the Bible is saying, no, it's through faith. You, all you have to do is believe and you get saved. That's what you need is salvation. Then the Spirit comes in. Then you'll start to find that you might be able to do those things. Some people, it takes a long time. Some people, it happens overnight, but it is a process. And so I think the untold harm is we convince people all the time that you're not saved. You might want to think about that. If you're still struggling with this in your life, you might not be saved. <laughs> Let's move on. Galatians 3, 22. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. I like the way Paul talks here. The scripture, the, the law, imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Do you hear that? The Bible, the scripture, the law imprisoned everything under sin. It was a prison so that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to try harder, do better, be gooder. You just have to have faith in Jesus. It is salvation through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, not by any works of the law so that no man can boast. And Paul says the law imprisoned everything so that you would have nothing to do but stick your hand through the, through the bars there and say, I need some forget mercy. Give me mercy. Let me go back because I didn't read all that verse. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, again, do you see this time stamp, this expiration date, best if served before, until the coming faith could be revealed? So then, the law was our guardian. And here it is again, until Christ came. There's a, there's a time limit there. 
in order that we might be saved or justified by faith. So Paul is awesome. <laughs> he just said that the law is a prison cell. The law imprisons you. The law is, is controlling you and holding you back. And then if that wasn't enough, he's got another illustration. And he says, it's our guardian. Literally, you could say it's our schoolmaster. Uh, when I think of schoolmaster, I think of a picture like this. You've got this schoolmaster with this, this rod, right? And then the students put their hands out on the desk and <laughs> slaps their hands, you know? You, you, anyone, anyone here go to school like that? See, we, most, of, most of us grew up in a generation that says, you know, no corporal punishment, but you went to a school like that. So this was probably normal um, 50 years ago, and it was definitely normal in Paul's day, and it was definitely normal in Luther's day. Um, your Bible might say tutor. Your translation might say tutor, or it might say guardian. The ESV that I just read says guardian. Unfortunately, those words really don't do justice to what Paul is saying, because the word tutor, doesn't it sound like a sweet college kid who's helping you to understand things that you don't understand, right? This little tutor comes to your house and helps you understand trigonometry. And if you take that word and hear what Paul's saying, you might be tempted to think that the law was a sweet college kid who's teaching you how to do things you don't understand how to do. So you just got to work harder at it. You'll get it. Keep trying harder. You'll get it. But that's not what Paul's saying at all. The word guardian also, I don't think, does it justice because that sounds like someone who's guarding you, right? Someone who's cherishing you and protecting you and keeping you safe like Mary Poppins or something, right? And Paul's definitely not talking about Mary Poppins. In fact, he, a better translation would be the word schoolmaster, but that won't work for our generation because we have no idea what a schoolmaster is. The Greek word is pedagogue. Pedagogue. You see, and what that means is literally a slave that was attached to a child in order to be their disciplinary um, guardian and tutor, teach them you know, English or, or Greek or whatever. And so back in the ancient world, um, parents, they had, they had slaves, and then they would have children, and then they would attach a slave to that child and say, this is your pedagogue, and you're going to follow him around everywhere, he, like Mary Poppins did, you know, follow these kids around, keep them in line, keep them safe, teach them, you know, Greek or Hebrew, and, and take care of them. And, and there may have been some Mary Poppins types, you know what I mean? They may have really, truly loved those kids. But by and large, the stereotype, the normal is, is, is this right here, the, that of the harsh disciplinarian who frequently resorts to physical force and corporal punishment as a way of keeping the child in line. So what Paul is saying first is the law is our prison, and the gospel sets us free from the prison. And then he says the law is our wicked schoolmaster who beats us with sticks until Jesus comes, and we don't need the wicked schoolmaster anymore. Luther paints a picture for us in his day. He says, show me a pupil who loves his schoolmaster. You can't. You can't find one. How can a pupil love a teacher who frustrates his every desire? And if the pupil disobeys, this happened to me when I was in third grade, the schoolmaster whips him, and then the pupil has to like it and even kiss the rod with which he was beaten. Do you think the schoolboy feels good about that? No. As soon as the teacher turns his back, the pupil breaks the rod and throws it into the fire. Isn't this true? So Luther is saying, we don't like the law. We don't. It's a prison, and it's a schoolmaster, and it beats us. We don't like it. And he goes on, verse 25. But now, now that faith has come, now that the promise that God gave Abraham has finally come in Jesus, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through, what's that word? 
through faith. For as many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male or female, for all of us are one in Christ. Nobody can look down their nose at anybody. Nobody can take the first use of the law and beat them with it because we're all equal in Christ. We all only need one thing, and that is, what's the word again? Faith. And if you have faith, you can be saved. You can be a son of God. You can be the rightful heir of that promise that was given to Abraham. The, the law is, it exists for sin, to control you, to convict you, to pr- imprison you so that you long for freedom, and to beat you and whip you so that you long to outgrow it, and, and you get faith, you get Jesus. So Paul has just said, the law is a prison, and the law is a schoolmaster. It's like a one-two punch, you know? Uh, it's a... It's a it's a, left, it's a left hook and a right uppercut. That's what he just did. Boom, boom. The law, it's a prison. Boom. It's a school teacher. Pow. Wow, that hurt my abs. <laughs> just kidding. Pretty genius, isn't it? So Paul has set us free from bars and from rods and from job descriptions. Amen? If you're free, if the Son has set you free, then you are free indeed. I want to conclude with Christ. And Paul says in 26 and 29, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Through what? Faith. faith. One scholar noted that the word faith is always on the tip of Paul's tongue. He's always saying faith, faith, faith. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, no works of our own, so that no man can boast. It's faith. He's quickly always pointing us back to faith. That's what you need, brother. Faith. That's what you need, sister. Faith. You don't have to try harder. You don't have to do better. You just need some faith. That's it. That's what the promise was given to. The law came 420 years later and has nothing to do with the promise. The promise is in what? Faith. And so you've been set free from the prison bars and from the teacher's rod. Let me, let me, let me say this. Let me ask you this question. Has the law done its part in your life? What I mean is, has it beaten you down? Has it convicted you? Do you feel imprisoned by your sin? Are you imprisoned by addictions? Are you, are you struggling with anger or rage? Do you wrestle with the fact that you can't cease to gossip? Do you feel the rod of the teacher saying, you're not good enough, you'll never pass, you're gonna fail? If you do, then that's good. The law is doing its part. It's beating you down. It's convicting you. But can I encourage you, if the law has done its part, why not let the gospel do its part? The law, I mean, the gospel lifts you up. The gospel sits you in that high back leather chair and slides the inheritance across the table and says, this is all yours through faith. Yes, you're wicked. Yes, you're sinful. But Jesus died for your sin. Jesus fulfilled the law for you so that you can have an inheritance that you didn't even earn. You may have only worked an hour, but you still get $20. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we are we're messed up. We really are. We get confused even about what we're supposed to do and what we're not supposed to do and how we're supposed to live and how we're not supposed to live, and most of us don't do any of it well. And we are blessed to have the free gift of salvation that is given to us through Jesus Christ simply by placing our trust, by betting it all, by believing and having faith in Jesus 
Christ, we thank you, Father, that you gave your son to us so that anyone who would believe in him would not perish, would not be condemned, would not suffer, but have everlasting life, would have an inheritance with you forever in glory. So we thank you. We thank you for all of that. We ask, Lord, even tonight as we worship you and glorify your name, that the Spirit will move in our heart and it will show us and reveal to us how much glory you deserve, how much praise you are worthy of because you have saved us out of the muck and out of the mire. You have ripped down the prison walls. You have destroyed the rod of the teacher and you've given us freedom. You have set us free indeed. It is for freedom that you've set us free and let us worship you and praise you for that. As we roll into communion, amen, as we roll into communion, I wanted to close with this one thought. Um, Luther says, the proverb has it that hunger is the best cook. That's true, isn't it not? If you're hungry, <laughs> anything tastes good. The law makes afflicted consciences hungry for Christ. Is that not true? When you know your sin in the depths of your despair, should you and do you become hungry for more Jesus? Yes. Jesus tastes good to those who have been convicted. Hungry hearts appreciate Christ, and thirsty souls are what Christ longs for and wants. He invites them, he invites all of them to come unto me, he says, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. And what will I do? Jesus says, I will give you rest. Are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Are you tired? Jesus says, as often as you gather, take the bread, drink the cup, remember how much I love you, and eat and drink and find rest. Amen.